Here we go. Today is Sunday, April 16th, 2017, and this is episode 188 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hello, Jerry. Good to see you. How are you, sir? I am uh, I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm not as busy as you are. Yeah, I... I, I I'm in this mode now where I just kind of wake up and figure out where I need to, what, you know, which state I need to be in. So <laughs> you know, in all seriousness, uh, your travel schedule is why companies have private jets. I, I can understand. Absolutely. Because yeah. of how much time, you know, you waste with commercial aviation, relatively speaking. I, I absolutely but, understand that point. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, and we're hinting at we've missed a couple of weeks here and there. We do apologize. Uh, all all my folks. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I think I think we'll have to work on some mobile recording possibilities, maybe. Yeah, yeah, we are. I'm, I'm definitely uh, investigating that. So we'll we'll come up with something that uh, gets us a little more consistent. Um, you know, last week I, I I woke up on Saturday and found out I needed to be in New Jersey on Sunday. So we usually record on Sunday, and that kind of. Shot that plan and to hell. So. Instead, you had to go to New Jersey, which is wow. it was It was lovely. I'm so sorry. Actually, you know the 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 place I was at and the weather was was quite nice, so it wasn't too bad. Yeah, we make fun of Jersey, but it's really not that bad. So, uh, so just a reminder before we get into the stories, our thoughts and opinions expressed on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers, unless, of course, you are willing to pay. Um, you know. A ridiculous amount of money and then of course our opinions and your opinions can align we can be bought yes but it's we're, we're stupid expensive it's very expensive that's true that's not right. as not as expensive as your mom but expensive oh jesus christ here we go <laughs> so i don't even know why we're having a show not much happened in the last couple weeks no no i mean it's been a quiet week it's been a really quiet just, week just good it's uh you know we blue teamers need need a break from time to time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, basically nothing been going on. Uh, so, so which which kind of dovetails into our first story, which um, comes from Ars Technica, and the title is "Mysterious Microsoft Patch Killed Zero Days Released by NSA Leaking Shadow Brokers." Supposedly NSA leaking. Supposedly NSA leaking. Supposedly right. shadow brokers. Right. Supposedly Russians. Although. I- Agreed, but I've seen a lot of linguist experts say that it's likely a native speaker trying to inject what they think a poor English speaker sounds like from Russia. Yeah, I've I've read that too. So who knows, right? It's it's the attribution game all over again. Everybody wants it to be some way, right? So anyway, um, I, I, I guess it's been a couple of months ago now, maybe a month or, month or so ago now, we talked about how... Um, Microsoft deferred the patch Tuesday for February, right? And with no and explanation, no explanation, and you know the you basically the industry was kind of standing there with their mouth hung open, like they've never done this before. And you know, now, to, to be fair, they also moved to cumulative patching at the same time. Well, that's that is that's also true, and and 
you know, the point here is that there's, there is a lot of discussion, but no confirmation that possibly the reason Microsoft delayed their patching was as a result of, of a disclosure that the, the shadow brokers made back in January, um, you know, after the January patch Tuesday before the February one that, um, that, that they had uh, a couple that the shadow brokers had a couple of uh, code name projects that they were, they were going to be disclosing. And in fact, this past Friday, they, they actually did disclose that. And uh, there was quite a bit of hoopla, especially on Twitter, because a couple of the, the, the exploits appeared to be zero day and, and in fact were tested by you know fairly reputable uh, security researchers and, and confirmed to be vulnerable. Uh, however, upon further investigation and, and uh, vulnerable and against Windows operating systems, Windows right? operating systems, that's right. Yep. Um, like currently supported versions of and, Windows and, and highly effective, like single click, yes, full remote code exploit. You own the box sort of exploits. Like, yeah, MS 08067 type badness, right? It, mm-hmm. It's that kind of, that kind of badness. Um, but however, what, what transpired actually, by the time I woke up on Saturday, Microsoft had released a, a press release or I guess it was a blog post more, more of a blog post than a press release, basically saying that in fact, those were not zero days. They were patched in the March patch Tuesday release. Nearly a month before the Shadow Brokers release of the code. Correct. And, and, and to be fair, backing up just a tad, Shadow Brokers was trying to sell these exploits. Yeah, for like $100 million, right? right. And ultimately said, screw it, we're going to release it for free because nobody's buying. So here you go. Right, right. So, so there, there's, a, there's a, in this particular article goes through a couple of different conspiracy theories and it, you know it's probably one of them or some combination of them but basically you know the the thinking is that the NSA may have uh, may have realized that this was about that these exploits were about to hit the street and so they contacted Microsoft to give them the details you know maybe either directly or through some some third party and gave Microsoft a chance to patch them which they were in fact patched in uh, you know, in, in, in March. And, and by the way, at the time, Microsoft, so if you go back and look at the MS, it was MS uh, 17010 is the, is the patch number. If you go back and look at it, they have a table and it shows that none of them were, were being actively exploited. So I think that was why it just kind of, at the time. Yeah. And there was the, no attribution. There was no. Yeah, no attribution. No it, discussion. Yeah, so it just kind of looked like some researcher or or maybe even Microsoft itself found it and patched it and, you know, no big deal, move on. But apparently it was a big deal. Um, so there are, you know, there's other theories like that Microsoft may maybe paid Shadow Broker itself or maybe Microsoft independently discovered this stuff and you know, patched it and the shadow brokers saw that it was patched and decided, you know, to have a little bit of fun on a Friday before Easter. So there's, um, there's a lot of different, you know, hypothesis around this, but you know, really I gotta think, no, no idea for sure. No, correct. No idea for sure. But the fact that every single windows exploit against a currently supported operating system was patched tells me that it's highly likely Microsoft was aware of what was in this dump and had time to address it. 
It, it certainly seems that way, yes. Now, how they did that, I can't tell you. Um, but I don't think this was coincidence, and I don't think that there was just an, an overlap of independently discovered vulnerabilities that happened to uh, be fixed around the same time frame. Right. Somebody was talking to somebody. Yeah, so so, so uh, you know, I was talking to some people on Twitter, and one someone mentioned that you know Microsoft may have seen this from telemetry, uh, you know, being exploited, or they may have they have they may have gotten a, a heads up from some other third party researcher. But if they had done that, I would have I would assume they would have indicated that there was in fact active exploitation in the in the bulletin, and they said there was not. So. And that's also um, assuming that every single one of these was being actively exploited in a way that Microsoft was able to capture and solve. Well, like they didn't yes. miss a single one. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And by the way, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like everything's all happy and, and and roses and puppy dogs and kittens. You know, Windows two thousand three is vulnerable to a lot of these. Th- Windows Server two thousand three that is is vulnerable to a lot, a lot of these exploits. And there will be no patches. So if you are, you know, the, the, the hole keeps getting deeper for you if you are running older versions of, of Windows. Well, and also if you don't patch aggressively. Yeah, that's that's also true. No, they, so, it, oh, go ahead. Most of these ports that are, that are compromised typically are closed to the Internet anyway. So to me, this is more a lot of great fodder for... Uh, a malicious outsider who's come in through some sort of yes. phishing or other malware and, and gotten some persistence on somebody's desktop. But in general, the the assumption is most organizations don't patch quickly, but individuals do with the automatic patching being pushed in things like Windows 10 and such. I keep rolling around in my head if enterprises should be patching windows patches as quickly as they possibly can and is the risk of a patch breaking something higher or lower than the risk of a missing patch being exploited because the whole point of we why we hold off on patching is so that we can test it with a test group and do due diligence and make sure nothing vital breaks and i guess every individual corporation has to figure that out for themselves but i'm starting to drift over to the to thinking that the risk is higher to wait on patching than it is for a patch to be faulty. I don't know. Yeah, I I think you're right. It is up to each individual organization to make you know, to have to make that call because you know, if you're a, if you're a small shop and, you know, uh, um, you know, a uh, uh, you know, just have a couple of desktops down and everybody goes to lunch while, you know, while the IT person fixes it, you know, that's, that's a different thing versus, you know, a, a major enterprise completely unable to, you know, process orders or something right. like that. So, you know, I, I suspect that it's a, it's, you know, it, it, I, I, I can't help but think that this is the, the trade-off of, you know, the certain, the almost certain uh, Im- impact to your productivity from, you know, from a, from an outage versus, you know, the, the off chance of, you know, some exploit happening. Agreed. Uh, 
this is why I'm struggling with the topic. I, I also think it's harder now because we no longer have individual patches we can push. It's not like I could just say, well, this one's getting exploited. I'm going to take the risk on this one. It's a cumulative roll-up of everything. Yeah, I think Which, I, I think some I think the the enterprise is the enterprise version still gives you some granularity, but yeah, a little bit. Uh, I, you know, there's also a conversation that it could be had around workstations versus servers. You might say, yes. hey, let's let's push our workstations because they're the ones most likely to get attacked right in the short term. Right. I don't know. It's a tough it's a tough call, but I do think at some point it's worth revisiting the the risk trade off of waiting to patch in an enterprise before you test. Yeah, definitely agree. Now, I, you know, I was, I was thinking about this. It, you know, I was kind of doing a, a, a postmortem of what my thoughts were on Friday about this. And, you know, it, so, so at the time I, you know, I, my thinking was that this was in fact a, a couple of zero days and, you know, they, they are SMB, right? So they, they, um, you know the the Windows RPC port four four five is is how this is exploited, and you know it occurred to me that if you have a system that's connected to the internet, um, and, and maybe there's some selection bias here, right? But um, I've I've never really seen a system st- sit on the internet with with port four four five open for long and not get compromised. Uh, and so, so that's one one data point. So, you know, if you're if you're hanging out there like that, you're probably you probably already have problems. Uh, and then on the inside, so if you think about it as an internal attack vector, there's already a plethora of tools and techniques and whatnot to move laterally. You don't, you know, an, a sophisticated, even an, you know, maybe an unsophisticated attacker doesn't really need this tool to move around. You know, once they compromise a workstation, they, they, don't, they don't really need this this tool or this exploit to do that. So, the, to me, it seemed like the the marginal risk here was that it it it, it became worm. You know, somebody wrote a worm like Configure. Agreed. Uh, I think the other aspect of of an unknown exploit is that uh, your IPSs and IDSs and, and HIPs and whatnot aren't configured to look for it. Well, sure. Right. Yep. You know, assuming that you've got that instrumentation set up and ready to go. So, anyway, um, you know, it, and by the way, it's still ent- it's still entirely possible that somebody may, uh, um, you know, update Configure with with uh, MSO MS seventeen oh one oh. So you know, we'll we'll see that. I the the nightmare scenario I was thinking of was the uh, you know the um, the the disk wiper malware with um, you know with Combined with Configure, that'd be that'd be super. Yeah, I mean, we're still early in the analysis of this dump. There, there could be a lot more interesting stuff coming out. Indeed. So let's move on to the next story, which comes from bleepingcomputer.com, and the title is "Former Sysadmin Accused of Planting Time Bomb in Company Database." This is a this is kind of a wild story. So, uh, so the company here is Allegro Microsystems in. Um, I guess it's in Massachusetts. Now, I thought Allegro was an allergy medicine. Yeah, that's. It, I think you're right. I'm just saying. It's it's IT and allergies. Yep. I so think. that's an interesting diversification. No. no. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, go on. 
Um, so, so they had this, uh, they had this employee named Nimesh Patel who allegedly, uh, did some naughty stuff. So, so Nimesh was an employee for about 14 years, resigned sometime around, uh, sorry, January of uh, 2016. And he had three laptops. He had three company provided laptops, which is kind of interesting on its own. Two of them were for business purposes. And one of them was an older laptop that he could use for personal purposes. And, and so in the, uh, you know, after he resigned, they asked for his laptops back and he gave, um, he gave just one of the three back, one of the work related laptops back. And then later the company came back to him and said, you know, come on, man, we want, you know, we want the other laptop. So he, he then wiped the laptop he was given for personal use and then handed that one back, back in. But apparently he was also pretty pissed off because he went to the company's headquarters and parked in the parking lot and used his other company provided laptop to jump onto their Wi-Fi network, which apparently they have some kind of fancy, it sounds like they had some kind of fancy uh, setup where you, you needed you know, some, maybe some uh, certificate to get onto the Wi-Fi, which this this work laptop had. And then he... And hadn't been... And hadn't been, de- yeah, hadn't been deactivated. Mm-hmm. And to make it even better, he had a file that contained the credentials of uh, his coworkers <laughs> on, on, which, his, on his laptop. Which I find... Absolutely fascinating. I, I, absolutely, I, I just so, I, I don't know how that happens. <laughs> so he used a, another employee's credential to get into the system, perhaps at the Wi-Fi level, perhaps further in the story, because he had a file with the username and password on his laptop. Right. So one, I don't. Any modern password system shouldn't be like that. You shouldn't be able to have the clear text of the password. It should be a one-way encryption. Now, you could break them in theory, but I don't think that's what's implied here. It seems like they just maintained a clear text copy of username and passwords. <laughs> that Patel had access to employee credentials because he, he was one of the company's senior systems administrators and kept a copy of a file with usernames and passwords on his laptop. I mean, what did they do? Walk around and collect them? I, I, don't, I don't know. That's weird. Uh, see, it was a concierge password change, sir. Oh, that's, that's probably what it was, yeah. So, so Dimesh know. here was a, um, was a Oracle Financials administrator. You see where this is going? Huh? You, you. <laughs> so uh, so he, he, um, he wrote some code and uploaded some code using one of his former coworkers' IDs that uh, waited a couple of months... Uh, and shortly after, time to, to coincide with the period right after their fiscal close in April, uh, it, it basically wiped their, uh, you know, trashed their financial uh, table so they couldn't close the year. So, you know, he, he intentionally timed it to, to be kind of as as damaging as, as possible. Um, and, you know, in the, in the subsequent investigation, they, you know, they, the, uh, company realized that you know there was some code that that did this and they traced it back and figured out that it was his old laptop that connected to the wi-fi at the time and blah 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 
so they kind of pieced it together. Now they're uh, they're suing Nimesh for a hundred thousand uh, dollars at least, and uh, it's it's apparently set for trial later this year. So we'll uh, we'll see. But you know the thing that that strikes me is, you know, the, the, there were so many opportunities for this not to have happened. Yeah, absolutely. So many failures of best practices. Shut down accounts of people who leave. Uh, rotate passwords. If you've got a senior guy with this much access, you may need to take some extra steps. Right. Um, I also find it interesting that this is not a criminal complaint of any type at this point. It's purely civil. Yeah, it is. It is pretty interesting. You know, and so so it also strikes me, and and I know people may say, oh, you know, this, this, this hardly ever happens. Like there's just not that many stories like this. And I'm going to say, I think this sort of thing happens a lot more often than any of us really realize because companies, especially larger companies are super averse to airing its laundry. They would just rather, you know, pick themselves back up, dust themselves off and, and get on with it rather than, you know, go through the, the, the hoopla of, of, you know, disclosing yeah. it and whatnot. There is a, a great deal of institutional shame involved with this. Whereas, let's say this was a physical break-in. Some former employee came back, smashed in the front door and grabbed something. We don't blame the victim in that case. Right. 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 We, we, don't, we don't start analyzing the locks they had on the door, though sometimes we do. You know, it, we just say, hey, that guy did something bad. It's, you know, it's on him. Yeah, there's no defensive physical security podcast where... We talk about how they should have used better locks, is there? Well, maybe we'll start that. But <laughs> the, the, it's interesting how we still have the shame around the IT side of it. And I'm not saying that's good or ill. I'm just saying it's different. No, it, it, it definitely is. Well, I think, I, yeah, I, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different, I, I'm not sure that the metaphor, and I, I this think, is. I, well, because I think there's an acceptable societally approved level of due care on physical security. Yes, that's exactly. And, and, and the number of actors you're exposed to is is limited by your physical location. Correct. And, and, and you don't really have that. Now, I mean, this guy parked in front of the... I mean, this is a little bit different situation, right? But you know, in general, you, you know, in, in the cyber world, you're, you know, anybody in the world, theoretically, could be trying to break in your door, whereas... In the physical world, they have to be like in front of your building, right? So, so I don't know. it's it's an interesting, you know. But if it were a bank and they didn't have a vault and they had twenty million dollars in small unmarked bills sitting in a, you know, a small cash drawer, yeah, we would criticize that Absolutely. because they're not meeting the level of due care that is commonsensical around that industry, right? So I guess we just I guess that to, to your point, this points out that. We just don't have that. We don't have that concept in the, you know, in the logical world. And will we ever? I don't know. I don't know. It's things are moving too fast. It's it's hard to imagine yeah. that happening anytime soon. Well, as an aside, you know, I don't think we have this as a story. But we've talked a lot about cyber insurance and cyber liability insurance, and one of the cyber insurance vendors is partnering with Symantec to start establishing that do care necessary. Uh, to be insured. <laughs> they have to have SEP installed everywhere. <laughs> right. or, or whatever it may be. But that's something you and I predicted would likely happen. Yeah. Is that there would be some... Because the insurers have to figure out some way to, to, to limit liability. 
Oh, absolutely. And in, in, in somewhat of a uniform way, right? Because it's it's probably going to be cost prohibitive to to kind of figure out all of the, the nuances of each individual customer. Right. You know, some are mainframe, some are, you know, mixed Windows, Linux, some are all Linux, some are all Windows, some are, you know, and and every other variable you can think of. So it's a it's a very different type of landscape. Now, but but I I think this particular case shows that the fundamentals in, are really important. Like, you know, when when you when you have an employee, especially an administrator, and, and I, long-time listeners will know that I'm, I'm a little down on the IT people, right? That that IT people are employees who get disgruntled just like everybody else. Yeah, and 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 so, um, you know, we we need to make sure we we have that in mind, and and so, I I uh, I, I think that when hopefully this is kind of a wake up call and obviously not a, a really high level um, case or, or super important case i should say i'm sure it's important to allegro but um you know it's not a it's not a target or a home depot or something like that but it you know it really it really points out that the simple the simple things like deactivating user ids after someone leaves in a in a timely manner is really important and and changing the, the the importance of changing passwords and you know multi-factor authentication and, and you know just just the basics that we, comes we up over very, and over again. We get very caught up with the sexy nation state zero day stuff, and that's not what burns us. Right. It's 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 the block and tackling every day. Absolutely. But that's not sexy and fun. No, it is not. So moving on to our next story, this one comes from Computer World, and the title is What Prevents Breaches, a Process, Technology, or People? One answer is PC, and one answer is right. Um, so you know, the caveat here is the story is written by Ira Winkler, who is kind of a controversial character in the security industry. So you know, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Uh, but I, he, had, he had a couple of interesting points in here that I, I, I thought were, uh, were pretty, pretty good. Um, one was to make sure that you implement technology, and it's just kind of like intuitive, right? But I thought it was worth reiterating. It's important to implement technology in a way that anticipates the inevitable user failure. And, and by the way, the, the, the whole kind of theme of the story is that Ira Winkler is a person who specializes in training, uh, you know, in, in training companies for you know, security awareness and whatnot. And and his whole, you know, his his theme in this article is that uh, he believes that process is the most important thing. It's not it's not people and training. It's it's the process. And he goes so far as to say that your training should be telling people what to do in you know in in, in situations like with a phishing email, not what to be afraid of. And I thought that was a that was kind of insightful because I know I've seen a lot of training classes that just kind of beat into you how, how horrible it is, uh, you know, how, how horrible phishing attacks are versus, you know, what do you do if you, you know, if you, if you get it, if you, if you suspect one. And so I think that's really important. And then the other, the other point I thought was, was really great. And maybe it's just because it resonates with me is that 
um, process, he, he, he describes that the driving factor behind most companies' process documents is to pass audits and, and for ease of um, you know, proving your compliance rather than any kind of operational or uh, you know, effectiveness purpose. So that that was an interesting perspective, which I think is is probably true for most organizations. So yeah, I I would agree. Um, I had some interesting thoughts here too. That that at least I I hope they're interesting. He talks about process as most important, and he quickly pivots that to say that process is driven by governance. I get that governance can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people, though. Yeah, but he has a book on it, so I mean that. Right. Therefore, you know, it must. Uh... And, he, and he pimps the book in the article, so yeah, that's. <laughs> that's true. That's true. It's uh, it's a very good point. Um, but the problem I have is that governance and process cannot predict every situation, and things come up quickly and change quickly. Normally when I see an organization that is heavy on governance, that governance is usually a couple of years behind the state of the art in the threat. They're fighting the last war as you were. Yep. So yep. and and that governance can can tie the hands of an organization in terms of being nimble, in terms of responding to the recent current threats, especially if that if they're staffed just enough to meet that governance load in a highly regulatory or highly governed environment. So I understand, and I don't disagree with this point, but I do think people are inherently unpredictable, and at least in terms of doing the safest possible choice in a risky situation, they are unreliable for all sorts of reasons we've talked about as to why fishing always works, and people have been shown to, no matter how great they are in some circumstances and other circumstances due to stress or workload or incentives, they, you know, social engineering works because it's social engineering. It's it's meant to work. The bad guys know how to exploit that. So I think technology have, has to backstop human failure. Yeah. Yep. At the end of the day, and he and he, I mean, he comes out and says that, right? That that was one of his his main points was that you 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 need to. Uh, I think what the quote I read was, "You have to implement technology in a way that anticipates the inevitable user failure." And that's right. and I think that's exactly what you said. And yep, um, you know, I think his his net point is that the when when you go and train, right? You, the, the most important thing is to impress on people how to react in a, in a particular situation, right? Not, not that you can train them, you know, how to recognize every permutation of a phishing email because you're not going to be able to do that. But if they see one, what should they do? That's, that's, I think what, what his point was. So anyway, interesting. It's interesting. I was trying to look up a quote here that I cannot seem to find, but the Sun Tzu um, quote, isn't it? Damn, how did you know? Uh, I thought I was going to be all edgy and so, hip and cool pulling out the, you know, Sun Tzu quote about SQL injection, but fine. <laughs> no, I, I, okay, this is, I should have been better pre- prepared here. Um, 
Elon Musk wrote something recently about being a slave to process and governance. And when the process becomes the goal, originally a process is built because of a desired outcome. But when the satisfying the process becomes the desired outcome, you lose the point of the original process and you lose the efficiency and the goal of whatever was originally intended in that and you become a slave to the process. And and he had a really good quote around this the other day and I can't find it, but it would have fit in really nicely here in the story. And and in general, something I see often uh, with, with IT security is is once we get really governed and really process oriented and really documented, we lose the whole concept of what the risk is we were trying to mitigate anyway. Well, I think I think audit programs have that problem in spades. You know, security policies and in, in the in the other the flip side, which is the audits, you know, yeah. it becomes it, it becomes completely disconnected in in a lot of companies from the actual security threat. Yeah, agreed. And 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 also those who are deciding, building, and 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 auditing those governance processes are typically auditors who don't understand the state of the threat and aren't understanding that this is actually counterproductive to countering current threat. Right. But they, but they have to have, I mean, think, I think that their counter is, well, they have to audit to some objective baseline, which kind of tells me that the whole, the whole premise may be flawed. I'm not saying that I have a better, you know, better method. No, but, but I, I think you're absolutely right. We sh- is there a fundamental question of whether or not the current concept of, of big company IT auditing is even effective? I, I, yeah, <laughs> my my view is it's it's um it because, in, it's dysfunctional. Let's take a look part. at some new brand new threat that comes out via phishing. That's uh, attack against Microsoft Outlook preview pane. Right, nothing in governance has anything. Most typically, will have anything to say about that. Right. The only thing, and, and the most they would the the most they would say is, you know, did you apply the patch? In a certain <laughs> amount if, of time when it came out, right? That's, right. that's or, it. Or, yeah. Did you have your email security controls in place and running? Right. Did you have your antivirus on? <laughs> right. So I don't know. I, I have a longer rant. I'll have to work up on that one of these days. But moving on. So our, our next story comes from CSO. CSO Online, I should say. And the title is Report. 30% of malware is zero day missed by legacy antivirus. No. All right. So here's where the pedants come in. No. Here, here comes the pedants. You know, malware is not zero day, right? So, um, but well, but I guess malware is not, not zero day just because it got past your antivirus. <laughs> exactly. Right. Antivirus effectiveness has nothing to do with whether or not something is a zero day. Right. This is a marketing department who you misappropriated a term. Yeah, it, it is taking it back. It is. Uh, yes. It is definitely a marketing department. So, um, but the, the, the point is, and I, I mean, I think they're describing something real, even though they're, even though they're using bad terminology and, and, and they're, they point out that, um, in a, in 2016, this is the this report from WatchGuard, you know, which conveniently happens to sell a, you know, next generation antivirus gateway thing no i know it's surprising right it's, it's very surprising I, i'm gonna need a minute yeah <laughs> you're, you're, you've been shaken to your core right 
So, um, so the entire version of life has been just shaken. So they point out that, um, you know, in, in, with, with customers, they looked at the traditional antivirus caught about almost 9 million, uh, 9 million malware variants and, and, uh, their, their behavioral system caught another close to 4 million. And, you know, so, so that kind of Delta shows you that there's, you know, quite a lot that's slipping through the cracks. And I, you know, by the way, every, every report, depending on where you read it, it's like, it's all over the map. I mean, sometimes when you, when you read this, it's as low as 5% and sometimes it's, you know, in the nineties. And I think it really depends on who is the company producing the report. So we're rehashing the fact that antivirus misses stuff. Yeah. And that it's, that it's really important to, uh, to use, you know, the, the new, um, anti-APT, um, you know, the next generation web, web-based or cloud-based, uh, machine learning, and, and artificial intelligence. Again? Oh, WatchGuard. Well, they'll, they'll, they'll sell to you right oh. now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. So just, they'll hook you up. <laughs> Meanwhile, I've been viciously attacked by Fiona as she demands that. cuddles as we're recording the podcast. So, uh, Fiona's his cat, by the way, before anybody yes. gets any ideas. Um, yes. As she's crawling all over me right now. <laughs> so, the uh, there were a couple of other interesting things in there. They pointed out that in, in this report, there, there was an analysis of the top attack vectors, and all of the top 10 were web-based. And that seventy three percent of those were wait wait yeah 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 all wait. of the top ten were web based attacks that attack a web server or other network services via web based portals. How many other reports we've we seen? Like ninety percent of attacks start with some sort of email based. I, look, it's right here. WatchGuard doesn't sell email stuff, probably. <laughs> so, so so they probably just cut that. They cut that data right out, and and so right. you know, of what's left, I'm guessing. Of the types of attacks that our technology can stop, yes, mm. the top ten were 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 web based, seventy three percent of which were attacks against web browsers. Wait, what? Yeah, well, so so. Um, the, the, so you're saying like like malicious websites attacking browsers in a drive-by download or something? Or yeah, something? yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. I thought they were initially saying like it was against web servers and secret Yeah, well, the, the other 27% were, yeah. Mm. And then uh, and then the leading exploit category, which I don't know how to rec- to square that away with what we just talked about right there, is, the, is Linux Trojans, which look to open Linux or to turn Linux devices into zombies like the Mirai botnet, right? Really? And yeah. Yep. So that's the leading one, I guess. Is that including like against phones, running uh, Android? I, I I guess. Obviously, uh, this this story hurts my head. Well, I mean, it's, so we know, you know, we know that Mirai was a big and, and continues to be a big pain in the butt, and there there are yeah. a lot of other things like it constantly trolling the internet, trying to trying to sign them up to a botnet. So. That one's not doesn't so seem terribly far fetched. Currently, botnet creators are kind of like multi level marketers. I think that's good. Yeah. So there's like the Avon lady of the internet. 
<laughs> sure. <laughs> yes. All right. Carry, carry on. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that was, that was all for that one. Um, uh, Moving on to our next. Well, I think the takeaway, guys, is look at who writes these things, look at who pays for the report, and and be very skeptical when it's a vendor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so so on that point, and I don't, I, I don't know the, um, I don't think I, I don't think I saw any of the source data, right? But I I suspect that as we talked about, we we joked about it, right? But in in all likelihood, the set of data they're using is based on what they've detected, right? And so if they don't have the capability to detect email-based attacks, it's not going to show up in their data. Sure. Right. So they have one slice of reality looking through a straw of some size. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Sometimes what's not there is more important. All right, so moving on to our next story, which comes from Wired, and the title is How Hackers Hijacked a Bank's Entire Online Operation. I feel like we need, you know, suspenseful music right there. Dun-dun. Yeah. So um, Brazilian unnamed bank, or unnamed Brazilian bank, to to be more succinct, uh, was the victim of of a, you know, pretty interesting attack. Some, some... Bad people cloned their website. Hold on. We're assuming they're bad people. You don't know. Well, that, I guess that's true. They could be, I don't know, some charity or nonprofit. It could be the Red Cross. I mean, who knows, right? <laughs> they could be perfectly wonderful people who just They're, they're diversifying their... Uh, their, their what, if, what if they're amoral? You, you know, you can't make a judgment call on their morals, <laughs> mister. I don't think you're in any position. I'm... I, I'm Morally privileged, aren't I? Anyway, back back to the story. So, uh, so yes, um, so so um, the suspected, maybe possibly bad people, cloned this bank's online website. Um, they they used the the uh, Let's Encrypt uh, service to get certificates for their their lookalike websites. Then they compromised through some through some way we don't really know how they compromised the domain registrar account for the bank and then diverted the you know the uh, the main the actual the, the bank's actual website to their clone and so now well, what 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 they must have done is either stood up their own dns server and pointed the 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 main dot com record over to their dns server or the dns was actually at the registrar we're not sure which yeah, I, I, right. It, um, my what I suspect. I mean, if I read between the lines, what it sounds like they did was, you know, let's say it was ABC Bank www.abcbank.com. What they did mm-hmm. was they went into the registrar and they created a, a DNS record with a which is which was a a C name to their lookalike site. Right. And so anybody that you know, that, that well, I that, mean, they could have also that is one option. The other option is they stood up their own DNS server and just changed the. IP addresses of well the, re- the, the reason I th- for that yeah, the, the reason I don't think they did that is because they bef- before the attack they had set up the domains and they had they had gotten uh, SSL certificates 
Right. And so the only way they, they would have been able to do that is if they're using their own domain, not the bank's domain. And so, so, so they're, you know, I guess they could have done that, but they, you know, would have been a, a more common. It is unclear when we get to that portion of the story because jumping ahead a little bit, they had valid certificates right. for the domain. So either they duplicated the valid certificates with, with Let's Encrypt. Because what's interesting is Let's Encrypt has uh, sort of an offense in here that the only way that that certificate would have been issued is if somebody proved that they had control of the domain. And this, this certificate was issued six months ahead of the hijacking. Correct. But I don't <clears throat> – it, it, it's a little unclear in the article, but I don't think the SSL certificate they had was for the bank's actual domain. I think it was for a domain that looked like the bank's domain. Right. Yeah, it's unclear because we don't know who the bank is, and so we're, right. we're still missing some key details. But the concept of attacking the DNS registrar and forwarding traffic is incredibly powerful. Right. So, so apparently, for five, this was going on for five hours, and from the perspective of a customer, the only thing that really would have been noticeably different was that the you know that probably they didn't have an extended validation certificate. And, and honestly, who, or when they actually logged in, it didn't quite do what they expected it to do. Well, yeah, but I mean, up to that point, right? Right. You know, that if you go to the website, you go to your bank's website, and it looks like it normally does. But the extended validation certificate, you know, the little, the little green crap in the browser bar isn't there. What's the likelihood you're gonna, you know, you're gonna notice that? And, uh, close to zero. Yeah. So. Um, so, so anyway, the, the idea here was that they were collecting credentials, you know, valid bank credentials. And what I thought was really interesting was that for the time this was going on, the bank was kind of hosed because they couldn't even email. Right. They couldn't their get, index records are down. They yeah. couldn't. So, so the bad guys could have also cloned their email and just right. started sitting, you know, with a, <clears throat> owning DNS, they can own the MX record, which means they could send all email to whatever the hell they want. Right. And start looking at all inbound email. Right. Now, there was also in here, and they didn't go into a lot of detail, uh, but there was also a, a discussion in here about how they may have been men in the middling ATM transactions, too. That I find much more difficult to understand easily. Yeah, see, but just how many, of, I'm, this is quoting, just how many of the bank's millions of customers were caught up in the DNS attacks remains a mystery. Kaspersky says the bank hasn't shared that information with the security firm, nor has it public, publicly disclosed the attack. But the firm says it's possible the attackers could have harvested hundreds of thousands or millions of customer account details, not only from their phishing scheme and malware, but also from redirecting ATM and point-of-sale transactions to infrastructure they controlled. We really don't know, this is a quote, we really don't know what the biggest what was the biggest harm? Malware, phishing, point of sale, or ATMs? Now, the the one thing we didn't mention is that um, they actually the, the bad guys or ladies, uh, in in addition to cloning the website and and, and collecting phishing, uh, they also pushed down some malware, which purported to be an update for some uh, security software that the bank actually did use. And so, so, if you went to the you know you went to the to the bank site and you tried to log in, you got a prompt to install some malware that looked like a a security update. So that's you know, super. It's a awesome. nasty, nasty attack. 
Yeah. Uh, now, I, what, I, I was surprised it only lasted for five hours. That, that yes, was... agreed. They caught on pretty quick. Um, but I think this is also one that's fairly easy to, to, to counter. So there's implications here. It's maybe the, the registrar was social engineered and whatnot, but I think proper proper two-factor authentication or whatnot around your domain probably or around your domain registrar would have stopped this. I would I would imagine so. It, it's, it seems likely. But, you know, in the past, there has been a lot of hoopla about, you know, you just, you, you doctor up some government-issued IDs and claim that you're locked out of the account and whatever. And yep. So... They are a customer service organization. So there's probably ways to social engineer your way around it. So we, you know, we don't, we don't really know, but I mean, it could have been phishing. Uh, we, we really don't know. But you're right. There, most registrars do walk, do offer multi-factor authentication. Which, if you're not taking advantage of that, you probably should. Um, and you, you probably also should be thinking about, you know, if if your online presence is of any, you know, significant importance to you, you should also think about or, or come up with a way that you would recover your domain if if this kind of thing happens right so would you know who to contact at the registrar and and do you know what kind of information they would need from you to you know to to get back into your account so so you know i don't, I don't think it's rocket science but it's you know if it ever comes up it's probably good a good thing to know and and if you well, are oh, go ahead it's probably the same thing with your with your ip registration for Aaron or your local yes ip authority too same thing often it's some you know relatively low-level engineer in IT that did that stuff, and you should right. probably be a little bit more formalized around that. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, and and if, if you are a larger organization that has uh, you know a lot, a lot of importance pinned on your website, you ought to, you ought to look into some kind of monitoring service to, to detect unauthorized changes, right? I mean, there, there are services that will detect and notify you you know that you that your DNS is, has you know, dramatically changed. Hopefully, not via email. <laughs> yes, yes. You may want to use a different email server. That's true. Good point. Or, or some SMS alert or something. <laughs> Good point. So, uh, and also, you know, maybe have like a Twitter account or something to. I don't know. I mean, this is a tough one because they couldn't even notify their customers. You've got to think about an out of band communication protocol. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. They couldn't tell their customers to stop logging in. Stuff, stuff one. So, um, so moving on to the next story, which comes from softpedia.com. The title is Two Laptops with Hong Kong's 3.7 million, million voters' data stolen. So, there were two laptops that contained this you know, about three 3.7 million voter records, uh, you know, for relatively sensitive information, you know, like ID, ID numbers, addresses, contact phone numbers, that sort of stuff. But apparently it was encrypted on the on the drive, so they did that well. The one thing that I, the whole reason I wanted to bring this story up, I thought this was fascinating to think about, and I'm going to quote here: uh, the, the data stolen includes personal information on voters, like ID cards, numbers, addresses, and contact numbers, making for a rather important trove of information that could be worth a fortune on the dark web. The office says that da- this data is encrypted and should be safe. But that really isn't any guarantee the information won't leak or that encryption won't be broken. And so I was thinking, you know, that's a really interesting thing because in, uh, you know, in, in 
like with HIPAA, I'm just going to pick on HIPAA for a second. And I know Martin, I can hear Martin Fisher like already raising his fist, getting ready to to yell at me. Uh, you know, if 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 you if you lose data that's been encrypted like that, you know, oftentimes it's not considered a reportable breach. Whereas they're assuming here that even though it's encrypted, it'll be broken. Correct, and that's an that's a fascinating thought because it's it's not. I mean, it's kind of right. You know, if you look at maybe well, it depends well, if, on the type of. But if you look. It, and it's not that it's not that the encryption algorithm is going to be broken. It's it's that the encryption implementation is. So, I mean, how many times have we found in the past? I don't know, five or six years that you know Apple and Microsoft and you know, uh, I guess really Apple and Microsoft, um, you know, there 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 were ways to circumvent the encryption. True. Maybe not the time, but maybe over time. Yeah, that's the thing, right? So if you mm-hmm. hold on to the laptop for a while, and, and you know, maybe you can recover the data in a couple of years after some, you know, some exploit is uh, is uncovered, vulnerability is uncovered. So it was an it, interesting it, thought. You know, I don't know. I thought about this. So the encryption, I'm assuming, is full disk encryption. That's my assumption. I don't know that to be the case. Correct. Yeah. But how you do full disk encryption is also an interesting thing. So I've seen a, a number of impl- implementations that you pre-boot authentication. So even before the operating system loads, it's asking for some credentials of, of usually the local user to boot. So so let's say it's a Windows. It, it's basically caching the Windows login down to a pre-boot authentication routine and then asking you to log in before the operating system loads. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me. That's more secure. But what I've also seen is that an operating system that's full disencrypted can fully load without any sort of pre-boot authentication and come up fully. So even though I can't log in, I now have the entire operating system stack to attack. Right. So assuming I've got a full disencrypted box that will boot the OS and I can get it on my network, like assuming it's got DHCP or something – I don't care that it's a full disk encrypted drive at that point. Now I only care about popping the OS over the network or locally, perhaps, maybe. I don't know. I, it's just something I was thinking about that there's a lot of ways that you can get a checkbox for having a full disk encrypted box, but not really get a lot of protection from it. Yeah. The, the other the other common concern is that if you um, if you suspend your, or I guess if you hibernate it, is it? I don't. Right. I, I always yeah, lose the, the uh, hibernate versus sleep. Anyway, right. one or the other, you know, kind of just 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 puts it to sleep. And and if you open it back up, it's you know it's effectively still on and and running and decrypted. Even if you had the preboot, uh, you know, type drive encryption. And so, um, you know, when when you lose a laptop, that's also an important thing to figure out. You know, was it shut off? Mm-hmm. Because if it wasn't shut off, even though it was full disk encrypted, you may still you know, yeah. There's there's memory attacks to recover the key. There's all sorts of stuff. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. So anyway, um, something to think about for you. Uh, next and uh, next and last story for this evening is from uh, the Palo Alto blog. Title is Threat Brief: Credential Theft Keystone of the Shamoon Two Attacks. So we we talked about this. I guess it was last fall. There was a, um, a another set of the Shamoon type attacks, which is the distract uh, drive wiper malware that, that originally hit Saudi Aramco back in I uh, guess it was a number of years ago. 
uh, and you know, at the time, there's not a lot of details about how it was how it was spread, and then it popped up again late last year and really early this year. Uh, you know, back in in the Middle East again, and you know, again, there's questions. Well, how you know how does this thing get propagated? How how is it being spread? So Palo Alto has a has a write up about how that's at least from the point at which they kind of got into the they can cut into the 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 exploit chain, as it were, um, they they found out that uh, that the attackers are entering the organization through RDP, and they're they're either using default credentials or stolen credentials, and it, it appears there may be, depending on the customer, maybe doing both. Are they are they entering or spreading laterally via RDP? Uh, so they're entering the network with RDP. So this, that presumes that RDP. Is open to the world. Hmm. That seems bad. Um, yeah. Well, it would. You'd be surprised. <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of organizations use this as their remote access. Yeah, that's true. Um, solution, right? But so, at the end of the day, it comes back to still having some sort of credential. Apparently. Correct. Correct. Now, I, I suppose it's also conceivable. And the, the article is a little bit vague, right? Whereas I guess it's it's conceivable that there's you know that they've previously compromised the workstation and they're using RDP on a you know from one internal system to another system. But the way they the way they wrote it, it it smacks of, to me of what I've seen in the past where where companies have you know stuck servers on the internet and and that's how their employees get remote access. So anyway, um, the, the, then the attackers are you know, they use that server they've they've compromised uh, to install their their tools, and and then they they launch the malware. Now the malware itself is hard coded with a set of of uh, computer names and credentials hard coded with credentials. So what what this article is not clear on, and, and they they point this out is that. You know that the, they can see them. They can see the attackers come in via RDP. They can see them, you know, installing their toolkit. They can see them pushing out the, uh, you know, the, the Shamoon malware. But the malware is hard coded with credentials that allows it to, you know, to have access to all of the, you know, the workstations and systems that it's in, that it's infecting. Which, you know, they're 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 supposing that. There was some previous attack that collected, you know, probably against the Active Directory, <clears throat> my favorite thing, that you know collected all of the host names and you know the the passwords. Yeah, there's there's not a step in the attack where they're observing them collecting hosts and credentials, so it, it must have been pre-collected somehow. Right. So this this is yes. apparently stage two in the in, mm. in the in the program. So stage one was some you know reconnaissance where they collected. The, the list of server or host names and the and a, a set of credentials that let the the malware <clears throat> propagate out. So you know each when it when it when it gets uh, when it propagates out to a host, that host in turn tries to infect another two hundred fifty six hosts on its local subnet. And so you know it kind of fans out that way. So basically the you know the the 
the uh, the central host that they've compromised has a piece of malware that has a, a roster of uh, of hosts that it's going to reach out to and try to infect. Okay, so it 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 has credentials and it knows the host name and it reaches out and it infects those, and then each one of those hosts in turn tries to infect the you know the, the its local subnet. The local class C it's on. Right. It's assuming it's on class C, but it goes after. Right. Yeah. Just just integrate uh, the last octet from zero to two fifty five. Correct. So so yeah. that's um you know that's interesting, and they they point out you know that this is uh, again if if you have uh, better control of your credentials, right? This is a this is a a pretty effective mitigation against the Shamoon. Uh, you know the entire the entire kill chain, to use that god awful phrase, gets gets cut because you're you know th- this campaign relies on the hard coded credentials. So if you were using, for instance, multi factor authentication, this it wouldn't work. Now that's not to say that they wouldn't <laughs> come up with some uh, other way, right? But it depends on what credentials it is. It could be a service account. It could be all sorts of stuff. We don't we don't know what credentials they're gathering. Well, that's could uh, be that's also true. Yeah, it's there's a lot of unknowns here. Also true, but um, you know, fortunately, not a lot of people have uh, you know been the unlucky victim of a Shamoon attack. It it is um, I've I've been on the periphery of one, and it's not pretty. Uh, hopefully, it doesn't become more common. <laughs> but uh, you know, I I think it's an it's an interesting read on how. Uh, you know, a, a slightly more advanced attacker is is, is getting into and in propagating throughout an organization. So, worth the read. Indeed. A uh, lot, lot of other details are linked. Other reports are linked from this uh, this particular paper. So, give it a read. And that is the show for this evening. And and damn it, I'm really going to try to. <laughs> To get back on schedule and be back with you next week. And uh, j- just a reminder that I, I, I want to, from the bottom of my heart, thank all of our Patreon donors. Absolutely. Me too. Thank you guys. You guys are awesome. And uh, I want to remind everybody to, uh, if you want to find links to all the stories, go to our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Callet on Twitter at Lurg. And me on Twitter at malicious link. Anything else you want to add? Uh, let's see. You want to you want to uh, plug you want to plug your 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 book forward? Oh yeah, thank you. Uh, I wrote a forward to a book that should be out any any second now. If not now, I think some people are getting copies. So it's the Defensive Security Handbook. Name is similar to our show, but unrelated to our show. It was written by a couple other folks, good friends of the show. And I will conned my way into writing their forward. So don't let that dissuade you. The rest of the book's very good. <laughs> it is it, what I've read so far is very good. So I so look forward to reading the rest of it. So check that out uh, at your preferred bookseller. What else? Uh, I've got a project with O'Reilly myself that is getting close to finishing, and I might be able to talk a little more about that soon in the next couple of weeks, hopefully. A little tease there. Awesome. Um, Derbycom tickets are going on sale too soon, but don't buy them until I do. Yeah. yeah. We'll let you know when it's safe to buy them. Yep. What else? What else is going on? Anything you want to plug? Nope. I'm good. All right. Thanks, everyone.
We'll call it a show. Thank you. Uh, if you like us, give us some internet points on iTunes ratings. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Talk again soon. Bye. Bye.